Hi, this is Dr. Bethany Soleretter, co-host of Why Is There Suffering? You're listening to Pints with Jack. We should not read Lewis to do something with him, but for him to do something to us, as he always seems to do. This is Pints with Jack, Season 6, Episode 21, Jack and the Evangelicals, After Hours with Dr. Philip Ryken. Hello, everyone. Here on Pints with Jack, we're reading our way through the works of C.S. Lewis. And you may recall that earlier in the year, Andrew attended the Mere Anglicanism Conference. And I had originally been scheduled to attend, but with the blessing of conceiving our next child, my wife had her usual, unfortunately very severe, morning sickness. So in the end, I had to cancel. But since I didn't get to attend the conference, I decided to experience it virtually here on the podcast by inviting on the various speakers onto the show. And some of them we've had before, Dr. Crave, Dr. Ward, and Dr. Root. And today we get to add another name to that list, Dr. Philip Ryken. And this episode's opening quotation comes from him, from an essay he wrote entitled, Lewis as the Patron Saint of American Evangelicalism. And evangelicalism will be the broad theme of today, as I speak to Dr. Ryken both about that essay, as well as his assessment of Lewis's view on scripture and his work as an evangelist. For those of you who haven't encountered him yet, Dr. Philip Ryken is a Wheaton native, and both his parents taught at Wheaton College, home of the Wade Centre. He went to that school for his undergraduate, majoring in English literature and philosophy. Shortly after arriving, he met his wife Lisa, and they were married before their senior year. He has been a professor of theology there since 2010, and he is their eighth president of the college. Dr. Philip Ryken, welcome to Pints for Jack. Thank you so much, David. I, I am an occasional listener of your podcast, love the format and love the theme, and uh, it's flattering to be invited to be a guest. <laughs> well, you're very welcome. And since I didn't get to experience the January conference in South Carolina, tell me, what was your favorite part of the event? Yeah, so sorry you couldn't attend, and I would imagine uh, some of our listeners were there in Charleston. Great conference. I love the buzz before the conference started. I love the fact that uh, the audience was uh, was right with the speakers. You could tell because they laughed at all the funny parts. <laughs> um, probably the thing I liked the best, uh, frankly, it was the speakers dinner on the first night. And I was sitting at a table with Jerry Root, who I love, Michael Ward. Uh, we went to Oxford together, Peter Kraft, who I've admired from afar, and Dr. Alistair McGrath, who always scares me just a little bit. <laughs> and uh, just having a conversation around dinner, um, just talking about C.S. Lewis, and Jerry and Alistair got into a disagreement, which was lots of fun. Uh, but it was really great to be with other people who love Lewis, both the scholars and the audience. Mm. So the arguments, basically, that's what you really enjoyed. <laughs> I do like a good argument. There was a disagreement about C.S. Lewis's relationship with Mrs. Moore. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's, a, that's a disagreement that's been had in print as well. But we moved on to lots of other topics. And I'll tell you something else I really loved about the conference. Apart from amazing Southern hospitality, Charleston cuisine. I mean, there was a lot to like, David. But the focus on apologetics evangelism, really thinking about Lewis in ways that make a difference for how we proclaim the gospel today. That was really what the conference was about. And that was a pervasive theme. Uh, Amy R. Ewing was tremendous. I mean, just I hope people have a chance to listen to some of those talks. It was really 
a first-rate C.S. Lewis conference. Okay, now I'm really jealous. Well, <laughs> what can I say? At least you can listen to the talks. And, and you wanted to experience it vicariously. I'm trying to help you out here. <laughs> Thank you. Well, today I'm enjoying a nice cup of Earl Grey tea. Are you drinking anything? I am. I have a pint, so to speak, here in my Wheaton College mug. It is a pint of spicy ginger beer, which is about as far as I go with beer, frankly, um, and felt kind of English. I mean, I, I, you know, heard about ginger beer from E. Nesbitt and other English authors. I'm not sure there's any ginger beer in C.S. Lewis, probably only real beer, but <laughs> that's my pint today for Pints with Jack. Wonderful. Well, cheers. Cheers. So I gave a few sentences of biography in the introduction, but would you mind filling in your backstory a little bit for our listeners? Yeah, and this will be my C.S. Lewis backstory. I mean, I, I feel it's almost like I was raised on C.S. Lewis. I, I've said before, it was almost as if Lewis was a member of the family because he was talked about so often. My father was really in, influenced by C.S. Lewis and his literary criticism. We read the Narnia Chronicles devotedly from a, an early age. My grandmother taught public school mathematics to fifth graders, but always read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe with breaks in class because she wanted to find ways of smuggling uh, the gospel into the classroom. I can remember uh, walking into the English department at Wheaton College when I was a small boy, and to do that in those days, you had to walk past the sacred wardrobe that was in uh, Lewis's grandfather's home in Belfast. The, some of the C.S. Lewis materials but at that point had already come to Wheaton College, and I remember faculty spouse, Barbara McClatchy, showing me the stories and drawings from the boxen tales that Lewis and his brother Warney wrote when they were young boys. Um, I was in a production of Magicians of the Magician's Nephew as a leopard in a leopard suit uh, for the creation story. So it was a small role, but at least I got to hear the gong every day. And I mean, I just had lots and lots of C.S. Lewis experiences growing up. I grew up in Wheaton, Illinois. I went to college um, at Wheaton, studied, as you mentioned, English and philosophy, then went on to seminary and did my Ph.D. at Oxford. And in those years, I was a regular attendee of the Oxford University C.S. Lewis Society, got to know Walter Hooper and others during those days, and just heard tremendous lectures on Lewis and, and other members of the Inklings. Um, so I feel like I've kind of spent a lifetime with C.S. Lewis. I'm not really a Lewis scholar the way Michael Ward is or Alistair McGrath is, but I do live 100 steps from the Wade Center and have had some opportunity to reflect and think and even do some writing on C.S. Lewis. I just really love C.S. Lewis. And at Wheaton College, we regard it as a sacred trust that we have Lewis's library and artifacts and really a completely up-to-date collection of all the secondary work that's ever been done on C.S. Lewis. It's a it is a world treasure for the church and it's an exercise in the communion of the saints and our love for the church, for us not only to, to preserve those materials, but to make them widely accessible for scholars all over the world. Hmm. And we actually had, for one of our patron events, we had a virtual tour of the Wade. And I'm personally looking forward to doing it in person, hopefully this spring before my wife gives birth. So <laughs> please let me know when you're going to be here. I'd love to connect in person. I, I don't even need to say that we'll roll out the red carpet for you because that's what the Wade <laughs> Center does. We're actually um, doing something I think is going to be pretty cool. We're inviting people to do one minute and five minute videos with their favorite artifact 
from the Wade Center, and I've got a taping coming up in a few months. I said I want to I want to do a little video about the uh, Narnia Happy Meal toys. <laughs> I, I have really something serious and important to say about the Happy Meal toys and C.S. Lewis. Uh, but we like to have fun with the artifacts we have at Wheaton, as well as to treat them as an object of uh, serious scholarship. Mm. Well, the first work of yours, which I read, was the work which I quoted at the beginning of the episode from Lewis as the patron saint of American evangelicalism. And it was part of a collection of essays presented to Walter Hooper called C.S. Lewis and the Church. And it wasn't easy to find, and it was a little bit expensive, but uh, Dr. Ward recommended it to me, so I made sure that happened. And last season, we hosted a month of interviews with people from a wide range of religious backgrounds. People on this podcast are used to hearing Catholics and an Episcopalian rave about C.S. Lewis. But that month, we added a Presbyterian, a Mormon, Eastern Orthodox, Baptist, and even uh, a Jewish voice. But we didn't deal directly with evangelicalism. So here's the big question. And there's lots of things that we can talk about in relation to this. But my core question is, why is Lewis the patron saint of American evangelicalism? Yeah, so great, great question. And this Book chapter. Thank you for reading the book chapter, by the way. Uh, this came out of a talk I gave for the Oxford University C.S. Lewis Society, and, and uh, people had asked, hey, is there something you can give a talk on? I'm like, I'm not really an expert on anything C.S. Lewis related. I'm more just a fan, but I am kind of an expert on evangelicalism. I mean, I was raised within, uh, within earshot of the bells from Blanchard Tower on Wheaton's campus, and so I, I felt like, yeah, this is something I can reflect on a bit. To me, it's unsurprising that C.S. Lewis is hugely popular in evangelical circles. I think for a lot of reasons. First of all, he's a great writer, and so that's going to appeal, and a great storyteller, and that's just going to appeal to so many different people. I would say he majors on the majors. So the big themes of atonement, of salvation, of an eternity of fellowship with God, of sin and how it needs to be repented of. I mean, it's it's those core doctrines which we're going to hold in common as evangelicals with Christians of really every description. So I think that's, uh, that's a significant point. I, I would also say that Lewis's conversion narrative and his emphasis on coming to personal faith in Jesus Christ Maybe not the way exactly he would say it, but thematically, uh, it is being born again. That's such a very strong theme. I think it's a very strong theme in the Narnia Chronicles, just to put in narrative format. But it's also something that was important. Lewis told his story of coming to faith in Christ in a way evangelicals as born-again Christians could really resonate with. So I, I think that's another connection point. I'll just also say, I think we owe a great debt of gratitude, particularly to Clyde S. Kilby, who was an English professor at Wheaton College for many years and was one of the first evangelicals to really discover Lewis, have an enthusiasm for him, want to write about Lewis, promote his work. And um, over time, that started to have an influence. And then once it, once it became viral, it just went way beyond <laughs> what Dr. Kilby could do. Um, but I think those are a few of the things that really make Lewis very popular to this day among evangelicals. I will also say there are things in Lewis that actually don't resonate so well with evangelicals. So most, most evangelicals, say, of the post-war U.S. context 
would not have identified strongly with either the Anglican or Episcopalian church. So that's a different context that Lewis has. He can be a bit squishy on a few doctrinal aspects from an evangelical perspective. Um, in And again, you know, it, it would have been uh, beyond the pale for many evangelicals to smoke or drink, which uh, <laughs> C.S. Lewis believed rightly, I would say, that he could do to the glory of God. Another factor I'll just mention, David, I, I do think it's significant that Lewis comes from the UK. Probably a lot of evangelicals would say he's English, which of course, <laughs> he's not English. We'll claim him. But, you know, he taught at Oxford in Cambridge, and there is, to this day, a real fascination. There are lots of Anglophiles uh, in the United States and a lot of Anglophiles within the American evangelical community. So I think there are a lot of different factors that come together. The unique person, uh, the unique work of C.S. Lewis. But I think those are some of the attractional factors. Mm. I would say I don't hear so much about his smoking and drinking these days as an issue. I remember hearing that Bob Jones apparently said, well, he drinks and he smokes, but I think that man is a Christian. <laughs> yeah, that's been uh, quoted in a number of places. I've quoted it too and, and had sources to cite. But yeah, that was, um, I think there was a more legalistic era uh, in the evangelical community. Um, I mean, and Wheaton College would be an example of that because we had an absolute prohibition on alcohol for not only for students, but for faculty and staff, even though principally we regarded it actually as a matter of Christian liberty. But we're a bit clearer on that and have a more expansive policy to this day that we feel comfortable with. But that would just illustrate, I think, what you're talking about in the evangelical community. Mm. I heard that in 1967, C.S. Lewis was put on trial at Wheaton when some of the faculty took issue with not only his smoking and drinking, but also his romanticism and his apparent, I think that one's a little bit blurrier, support of theistic evolution. Yeah, so I actually, I haven't taken a deep dive on the trial of C.S. Lewis, so I don't know so many of those details. I will say that, well, I'll say a couple of things. One is I think an academic community is a community where we ought to be having disagreements and healthy arguments about them and trying to wrestle through and figure out what the truth is. I also think that Clyde Kilby was more than able to defend his support for C.S. Lewis. And interestingly, so I, at, at the Mere Anglicanism conference that you mentioned in Charleston, my talk was on C.S. Lewis and the Doctrine of Scripture specifically. And I actually had a couple of people come up to me afterwards and say, you know, that was really refreshing because you love C.S. Lewis and appreciate him, but you could also mention some things that you were critical of in his theology that perhaps could be improved. And I think that's the right way for us really to honor the legacy of somebody like C.S. Lewis, not, not to idolize him or to romanticize him, um, actually to take him warts and all and love him and learn from him and actually maybe learn from some of his rhetorical strategies uh, how to embrace you know, a beloved figure from church history in just the right way. I think we honor C.S. Lewis when we engage his ideas. Mm -hmm. uh, as an aside, I think I'm going to have to email Max McLean now and tell him that his next production needs to be The Trial of C.S. Lewis, and it needs to be Lewis coming to Wheaton and actually standing in the dock. I think that would be hilarious. <laughs> you know, that that would be interesting. Max might be up for that challenge. I love his work. And um, on a number of occasions before he's done his full-scale productions and traveled around the country, you know, screw tape letters and the great divorce and so forth. He's done readings of those at Wheaton College. He did a reading of his, uh, the part one of his two-part 
Lewis autobiography, and he told us, hey, this is just a reading. I haven't mastered this material yet. I, I can't remember him actually looking at the manuscript. He had already man memorized an hour of material. It was just it was a marvelous um, evening. But uh, Max McLean is really a treasure. Mm. Now, one of the things that's interesting in the Lewis community, obviously, we love the man. We, we think he's great. But in, in some quarters, I think there is a danger of an excessive hero worship and also taking everything he says as gospel. But it is really interesting how I think Lewis, in Christian history, I can't think of another figure that seems to garner such goodwill among different denominations, even when he's disagreeing with them. It's only very rarely do I come across somebody that really doesn't like Lewis with a vengeance. Yeah, well, Philip Pullman doesn't like <laughs> Lewis, right? So there are some there are some people. I, so, yeah, it'd be worth thinking about why that is. I think there are some other figures in church history. I mean, maybe maybe an Augustine that you know uh, generates a lot of goodwill across. Uh, Mother Teresa probably does. I mean, there may be a few exceptions, but I think there's a very personal tone to the way that Lewis writes. And a sense of he's kind of on your side. We're all in this together. There's just something about his manner of address. I think much more so than most other authors, you feel like you know C.S. Lewis. He's given something of himself in what he writes. Um, I also think he, by and large, treats people with charity, although he can be pretty biting in some of his uh, critiques, not so much of particular individuals, but more so of of arguments and of personality types. I mean, he, he can win an argument. Absolutely, he can win an argument. I also think he was pretty in touch with his own faults. And uh, I mean, I think of mere Christianity, for example, you know, is it there or somewhere else commenting on what he did in mere Christianity? He said, I, I didn't need to like learn a lot about the human soul. I could just look inside my own soul and see all the things that were wrong there, just write about those. I think that comes through in his writing, um, and I think it's very appealing to learn from a fellow struggler um, who's who's honest about some of those failings. I mean, I think there are a number of strong reasons why Lewis garners that mm. kind of affection. I think you're referring to the preface for the Screwtape Letters, the second one, the second longer one. Good, thank you. <laughs> I love to be corrected. In fact, I I was at the you know the conference in Charleston and. I said I had some trepidation because, first of all, whenever you talk about C.S. Lewis, there's always somebody that knows more mm -hmm. about whatever you're talking about because they've read C.S. Lewis and they, they love C.S. Lewis. Plus, we had you know world-class scholars at the event. But yeah, it's, it's good for our listeners to know that my speculation was a bit <laughs> off. It's, he's commenting on Screwtape Letters and the devil and temptation and how it works there. Um, that he knew from his own soul. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. At the end of last year, I gave a presentation to the Oxford C.S. Lewis Society. I've never been more nervous. I was checking and double-checking every single assertion that I that I made because I know Dr. Ward and many others were sitting in the audience and I didn't want to be corrected. <laughs> but when you mentioned mere Christianity earlier, what I thought you were going to say, and I think it's another reason why Lewis is so popular, is he will clearly declare when he's a, out of his depth, and more often than not, he won't even talk about it. So in Mere Christianity's preface, he says, I'm not going to talk about the evils of gambling because it just doesn't even touch me. And no doubt the excesses that that is, I lack whatever the uh, corresponding virtues are. Yeah. And I think more substantively, there are places where Lewis says, look, I'm not a Bible scholar. I'm not a theologian. 
I'm talking about some of these areas and, and I think it's good for lay people to do theology and lean into that and from their own area of expertise, which in his case was literature. But when, when Lewis makes some of those qualifying statements as he does from time to time in his writings, it's not sort of a false self-deprecation. It's actually a respect for the disciplinary expertise of other scholars, and it's a recognition of his limits. Um, and I, I think he, he stays in his lane, and when he's drifting out of his lane, he says, hey, I'm out of my lane here. There are people that know how to drive in this lane, and those are the people you should listen to. Which is a wonderful transition point, because obviously an important aspect of evangelical theology relates to sacred scripture. Uh, actually, earlier this season, Andrew interviewed Dr. Michael Christensen from Northwind Seminary about this. Lewis's comments on scripture has received a rather mixed reception among evangelicals. And I know you've written about this for the C.S. Lewis Institute, and you even addressed the Desiring God conference on that subject. And I'll be sure to include links to both of these in the show notes, because I would like people to go and read and watch all of it, because there are some qualifying points and that you, you survey a lot of the material. But would you mind outlining your understanding of Lewis's views on scripture and what you see as its strengths and its weaknesses? Yeah, uh, very happy to. And I'll maybe start with the latter. I think there are some things that have been a bit troubling to evangelicals who believe in plenary verbal inspiration. That is, the whole Bible and everything in the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, we believe as evangelicals in the inerrancy of Scripture. And Lewis, I think, demurs from some of the strong claims of those doctrines. Um, some of this you would see in his reflections on the Psalms. He seems to see a kind of spectrum of inspiration in the Bible, that the Bible itself is maybe on a spectrum with other things that are inspired in some sense. And I mean, he has makes direct claims to this effect that some things in the Bible are more directly inspired than others. Um, he also would put into the category of contradiction or error some things such as the Bible's broad use of numbers in the Old Testament, for example, or things that seem contradictory one place to another in Scripture. I think he feels like, yeah, Scripture sometimes is contradictory or uh, doesn't give us the complete truth, and he gives examples of those things things that he maybe struggled with in his own mind, um, perhaps. So those, those are a few things. And so interestingly to me, um, I was reading up on Lewis and the Doctrine of Scripture. I can't remember exactly why, but I was looking at the original manuscript of Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer. Mm -hmm. I say the manuscript, actually, in that case, the Bodleian Library in Oxford has the original. We have a share and share alike agreement with them for a lot of materials. And so I was looking at the facsimiles um, here on campus. And there's a whole chapter on the Doctrine of Scripture, Inspiration of Scripture, that Lewis did not publish, mm -hmm. in which he challenges biblical inerrancy. And I don't know why, and I, to my knowledge, he didn't comment on exactly why that chapter wasn't included. But I think it falls into this other category of, you know, things he was thinking about, speculating about, knew that people disagreed with, the people that he respected. Felt like, you know what, I should just hold back a bit. I, I don't want to be in the place of putting out there something that may be a distraction or maybe even worse than that. And, and similarly, at a certain point, Dr. Kilby at Wheaton wrote to Lewis and said, here's the Wheaton College 
statement on scripture. That's not quite the title of it. It has a title I can't quite remember. He invited Lewis's response to it. And Lewis frankly said, you know, inerrancy, that's not a term I would use. I have a bit of a different understanding, but I don't want these views to upset anyone. If it's better, just crumple up my letter and throw it in the trash. Now, I think Kilby knew that you got to save these materials from these great men for future historians to wrestle with. Um, So he did save the letter. But there's a kind of this is one area, I think, where Lewis had a bit of reticence. I also think, by the way, that if Lewis could have seen the kind of robust work that evangelicals did in the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, which is a more nuanced understanding of inerrancy that takes into account cultural factors like how people use numbers in ancient scripture or how you wrestle through contradictions. Like there are strong ways of defending a doctrine of biblical inerrancy that account for some of these quote unquote problems. And I would fault Lewis a bit here and and others have done so in that he really hadn't read the right books. There are robust defenses of um, an evangelical doctrine of scripture and he just hadn't read any of that literature and had relied on sources that were not as helpful, frankly, on Doctrine of Scripture. So I can go on to strengths, but it looked like you wanted to make a comment, David. Yeah. What you just said there, that has been my reading with some of the things that Lewis says. So for example, when he speaks on there being errors in the Bible and he refers to some of the numbers, well, it depends what you mean by error. Because if you are willing to concede that the genre that we are in is going to use numbers more creatively and more symbolically, and that is just accepted, then that's not so much of an error. It's just there's there's a difference between how people wrote books and read them in the ancient times and how we read them today. Do we expect this exact number to have been the exact number of people that were there or the exact age when somebody died? Or do we just accept that the author wants to communicate that, for example, uh, with the high ages in Genesis, is this the divine glory passing away and therefore the glory of the people the glory of the of the of the leaders showing that there's a diminishment as as god is drawing back if that is what the author is trying to convey then that is the literal sense rather than simply saying that by our standards of today when someone writes something like that do we expect it to be literalistically true yeah and what's interesting about that comment or critique is one of the real strengths of lewis in his understanding of scripture is his sensitivity to genre Mm -hmm. and how different literary genres work. And I think on some of these topics, he actually needed to apply that kind of thinking a little more thoroughly to his cultural and literary understanding of scripture. And that might've helped him think through um, some of these things that maybe on the surface seemed like problems. There are a lot of things that I think are really strong in Lewis's understanding of scripture. One of them, for sure, is he's just a terrific exegete of particular passages, and you see that in in places like his reflections on the Psalms. He had a robust faith in the supernatural dimension of Scripture, the miraculous power of God. He defended that against all comers, you know, in a modern context where people were um, attacking the very idea that God could do the miraculous or did the miraculous. So that's another, I think, strong area of of Lewis's approach to scripture. I would also say he wanted his doctrinal beliefs to be surrendered to the authority of God and the authority of what God had said in his word. And you see this, particularly in some comments that he makes in his letters to people. Um, He has kind of an offhand way in one letter saying like, yeah, I, I hear this objection, but 
you, of course, aren't going to think about it that way because you're going to recognize that God is speaking in scripture and, and you want to be submitted to his word. That was the effect of what Lewis was saying. So I think even though I don't consider Lewis's, I'll call it doctrine of scripture, parenthesis, Lewis himself said, I haven't worked out a doctrine of scripture. I'm not giving you a doctrine of scripture, but he has a functional doctrine of scripture. I think there are some limitations. I've spoken to that. But I think by and large, it doesn't have a deleterious effect on his other doctrinal views because his theology is surrendered to scripture and to the authority of God's word. So functionally, there's a humility and a, a reverence that Lewis gives to the word of God. Um, I think some these are a few of the really healthy things in Lewis's approach to scripture, which I think are healthy for evangelicals and healthy for Christians of any description. One other thing which I think does trip up some people particularly evangelicals when they read Lewis's thoughts on scripture, is that they see him use the word myth and they assume that what he means by that is what Lewis originally meant by that when he was an atheist and then a theist, that they are lies breathed through silver, that they're not actually true, that we're talking about something completely made up. But he meant something very specific when he spoke about the mythic qualities of scripture. Would you mind just explaining what that is? Yeah, I, I can I can do that a bit. And you know, Lewis moved from a lies breathed through silver to a view of myth become fact. By myth, he doesn't mean uh, the kind of thing the New Testament talks about. You know, cleverly devised myths that are leading people spiritually astray. That's not what he means by myth. He doesn't quite even mean what we might mean by like the Greek myths, although that's getting closer mythology. But myth is a story that helps you understand who you are. It's a culture shaping big narrative that puts everything into a perspective, including including God and our place in the world, and Part of Lewis's conversion narrative is realizing that the story of the Bible is myth in that sense. It's telling you about creation and who God is and his work through history with the people. But that myth actually became fact in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The incarnation is a miracle in which God enters the story. He's not just the author, but he's the leading character in the story. Um, and that actually happened in human history. And so myth is not somehow separate from a belief in, for example, the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, in a way that history is, history is the culmination of what myth was meant to be and should be. So that's a pretty simplistic understanding. There's a depth to how Lewis understood myth. But this idea of myth becoming fact um, is very important understanding how Lewis thought about scripture and thought thought about the Christian faith and really, you know, and there's that famous episode when he's in the common room at Maudlin College and there's an atheist, hard-boiled, I think Lewis calls him, atheist in the room uh, who says, rum thing, it's this myth of a God dying and rising again. It seems to have actually happened once. And Lewis realized then, wow, if an atheist uh, can come to that perspective, like there's no place safe um, you may just have to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. That was a key part of his conversion narrative. Mm. As we wrap up this section, the other thing that I often remind people when they get upset with Lewis for some of his views about scripture is that by and large, these were in private correspondence that he opened up about. The only work I can think of where he publishes stronger opinions is in Reflections on the Psalms which I'm looking forward to doing one day on the show. <laughs> and one thing that I also like to follow up with is pointing out that while Lewis 
thought that the book of Jonah read more like a parable. And I do think that there is a case that can be made for that. I think there's a counter case. People can work it out for themselves, which they think is the stronger one. But despite Lewis saying that, he absolutely affirmed that the Gospels taught us history. They taught us what truly and really happened. And for the Christian, that is the central event, both the person of Christ and his crucifixion, burial and resurrection. So yeah, a couple of things I'd love to just comment in there. First of all, I think we all need some space to work through the doubts that we have in various areas of our Christian faith. And the Bible is doubt friendly. That's friendly to doubters. <laughs> and in fact, many believers are what I am now referring to as doubter believers with a hyphen, you know, because you're working things through and you need some places where you can talk about that and maybe even write about that with a sense of humility and a deference to people that know more about these things than you do. And I think Lewis exemplified all of those traits. Yeah, good good point on, on Jonah. And I, I think what Lewis would not say is, look, here's something pretending to be history and it's false. Mm -hmm. He didn't think the Bible was like that. He had some disagreements about what parts of the Bible actually are claiming to be history. And he would look at Jonah and say, you know, I'm, I read a lot of literary text. This doesn't feel like a historical text. This feels more like an extended parable. So we have different expectations of it. Now you can argue with C.S. Lewis about that. And you can say, well, no, this actually does look like history. It's got a historical context. Like that's the argument that you would need to take. It would be on the intrinsic qualities of the literature itself. So uh, th that's the kind of give and take I think we should have with C.S. Lewis. One, one final thing I could just point out on this topic, and I hinted at it earlier, David, and that is Lewis was really scathing in The Great Divorce and some other places of clerics and scholars who led people astray by not believing in the supernatural power of God or the true things he said in his word. He just had no patience for that. Those are the people, frankly, that are going to lead you to hell. That that functionally would be Lewis's view. So um, I think that needs to be part of our perspective here as well. He's a cautious explorer in some areas of the doctrine of scripture he was still trying to figure out, but didn't want to lead people astray on the word of God. Mm -hmm. I think a very good essay to read following up on those thoughts is Fern Seeds and Elephants. It's kind of hilarious. Yep. Great. I wish we had time to talk about that too. Even the title ought to be enticing. Fern Seeds and Elephants. What could it possibly be about? It's one of, it's one of Lewis's great essays. In terms of titles, I think it's second only to Blusfels and Flallon Spheres. I actually haven't read that one. So, you know, we got to throw Bulverism in there. We got to throw Eustace Clarence Scrub. Uh, there's, there's a lot of good nomenclature in C.S. Lewis. Mm. Now, the last major topic I'd like to speak to you about is Lewis's work as an evangelist. If we're talking about evangelicals, what are evangelicals known for? Sharing Jesus. So you've also written about this on the C.S. Lewis Institute, and you also have a chapter in a book on the subject, which is called Light Bearer in the Shadowlands, The Evangelistic Vision of C.S. Lewis. So in broad strokes, how would you characterize Lewis as an evangelist? both in his books, but also in his day-to-day -day interactions with people. Yeah, there's so many things to admire here. That was a fun project to work on there. Uh, Angus Manoj was putting together a book on Lewis and evangelism, and he wanted some factual basis for showing that Lewis was an effective evangelist. And I had access to the Wade Center and agreed to do the project and just learned a lot and, and learned a lot, not only through reading C.S. Lewis's writings, but also personal narratives of people's people whose lives were changed by C.S. Lewis. And we've got a lot of those testimonies in the Wade Center at Wheaton College. It's really, really encouraging. 
So Lewis, you know, there's so many virtues to his evangelistic practice. One thing I would say was at the core of it, out of love for his fellow human beings, he truly desired that others would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He prayed for this. So interesting. I think it's in Letters to Malcolm where he talks about his little prayer journal. And he says, look, I've got, a, I've got two columns. I've got people that uh, don't know Christ, that need to know Christ. I've got other people that do know Christ and they need a lot of prayer too. And he said, you know, sometimes you feel like God's not really hearing your prayers. But I look back and I see how people got transferred from one column to the other, and it shows me that God is at work in the world. So this was part of Lewis's own personal practice. Of course, he's well known for his apologetic writings. Mere Christianity, uh, you know, more or less falls into that category. He's, these were talks he gave during wartime over the radio, and his overall purpose is to persuade people to give their lives to Jesus Christ, to uh, to embrace the gospel, whatever words you would want to put around it or whatever words Lewis would want to put around it. And he was very effective, partly because he knew the human soul out of his own experience, like we've talked about, and also because he is tremendous at explaining things in a way that you can actually understand mm. um, and also feel, I would say. That's part of the power of narrative, um, and, and Lewis does that in a lot of great ways. Interestingly, like a lot of effective evangelists, in some ways didn't really think of himself so much as an evangelist. When he thought of evangelism, he thought of what, on at least one occasion, he called a hot gospeler, <laughs> a certain kind of fiery preacher, maybe Welsh, I don't know, that gets a strong emotional response, perhaps. When he uh, tag-teamed on some of his evangelistic work with uh, RAF pilots also during World War II, he actually expressed some regret because he was uh, partnered with Bishop A.W. Goodwin Hudson, and he said, hey, you do the heart stuff. That's not <laughs> what I'm good at. I'll do the head stuff, mm -hmm. by which he meant attacking arguments against God, giving good arguments for God. Uh, he liked the cut and thrust of debate and argument. That would have been evident in the Socratic Club at, at Oxford as well. That's another con context in which he was doing apologetic work. I think he sells himself a bit short because I think in the in the course of giving reasoned arguments for God, he does speak to the heart and touch the heart. Mm. He could he was more effective at doing the heart stuff than he thought perhaps he was. But I think he was a bit onto something in that we've got different gifts for evangelism. We need to use the gifts that we have, admire the gifts of others. It is kind of a team sport because most people are not led to Christ simply through one conversation or one contact. It's, it's God working through a variety of different sources, ultimately through his word. But those are some of the strengths of Lewis as, as an evangelist. And then just one other thing I, I think is important to recognize, David, when you think of apologetics, we often think of somebody who doesn't know Christ being introduced to Christ and being persuaded, perhaps, to come to Christ. Although when I was a freshman at Wheaton College, we had a little glossary of terms, different things we say at Wheaton or things you need to know. And there was a kind of tongue in cheek definition of apologetics. Apologetics is the art of making somebody sorry for asking you why you're a Christian. Um, so apologetics in that sense. But here's the point I want to make. And that is that Part of the work of apologetics isn't just bringing people into a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's actually keeping them in that relationship. And sometimes when you're 
tempted to doubt or having certain struggles or somebody asks you a hard question about the faith that you can't really answer or you're dealing with a great tragedy that brings a lot of doubts, you need some reassurance of the truth of the gospel, the truth of the Christian faith. And that aspect of apologetics is also really important. And I think Lewis really does a great job of connecting with people through what is, I would broadly think of as his discipleship. Those are, those are a few of the strengths I really see in Lewis as an evangelist. Mm. I know he described his work as propatio evangelica rather than evangelium. So he was about preparing the way. And as I read your chapter, I thought that if Lewis had to have two patron saints, he would do well to have John the Baptist and Nehemiah. Since I, when I hear people's stories about Lewis, he often forms that kind of function. He either prepared the way for them to receive Jesus, to hear the gospel message in, in its clarity. He'd already dismantled the intellectual objections which they might have brought to such a presentation. But also, he very often seems to rebuild people's faith after it's taken a beating, either intellectually or emotionally. When people come to Lewis, they often find their resources which allow them to help rebuild the city that was once destroyed. Yeah, I mean, that's so well stated. I, I don't have much to add to that. Although I will say, you know, one of the things I looked at was different letters that people wrote in um, or oral testimonies that they gave of the role of C.S. Lewis. And I remember reading somebody along these lines saying, look, Lewis didn't save me. Jesus saved me. Like only Jesus could save me. But Lewis had this really important role in building me up, strengthening me, and it's just along the lines of the kind of Nehemiah work uh, that you were talking about. And I maybe that's another aspect of really understanding what's involved in evangelism. It's not all up to us because there are other people that are also sharing the gospel through their lives and through their testimonies. But we ourselves maybe may have more than one gift to use in evangelism. And Lewis is a preparer of the way, demolishing arguments, but he's also a consoling strengthener of the faith. He had more than one gift in lots of areas, uh, but even in this area of evangelism, used his gifts to the fullest. You know, it, it's something we sometimes talk about at Wheaton College. What should be the fruit of a Christ-centered liberal arts education? That'll work itself out vocationally. It'll work itself out in the context of the life of the church. But one thing that a disciple of Jesus Christ who's been educated in the liberal arts with the breadth of preparation that that kind of education provides is you ought to have a lot of tools to use in doing evangelism, in replicating your life of faith by the power of the Holy Spirit in, in the lives of others, and having, some, having a breadth of mind, um, having a breadth of skills in the way that C.S. Lewis so amazingly exemplifies. Um, that's something we're striving, we're striving in that direction with our students at Wheaton College. Mm. And before C.S. Lewis, there was St. Paul, and I'm sure his broad education came very, came in handy when he arrived at Mars Hill and he was not preaching to Jews anymore. And so he drew upon pagan poetry and used that as the springboard to present the gospel. And before that, there was Moses, and before that, there was Joseph, Daniel. There's something to be said for that breadth of preparation um, that God can really use, particularly in Christian leaders. Wonderful. Well, before we wrap up, is there anything else about Lewis that you'd like to share with our listeners which you think is important before we uh, part ways? Well, one thing I love about C.S. Lewis is he was such an amazingly gifted writer in all of these different areas. 
So if you're inspired by these uh, Pints with Jack conversations to learn more about C.S. Lewis, it's good to go back and reread some of the books you've read before. And Lewis himself would strongly encourage us to reread the great books. But also, there are probably some areas of Lewis that you haven't explored yet, what he thought about literary criticism. Maybe you've never read the Space Trilogy. Uh, maybe you've never looked into some of Lewis's essays. Unless you've totally mastered the complete Lewis corpus, there are some undiscovered countries out there for you. So one of the things I, I love about C.S. Lewis is there always seem to, seems to be more to discover. So um, let this be an invitation uh, to some of our listeners to read more Lewis. We have to have another Jerry Root at some point, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Dr. Philip Ryken, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. And um, love the opportunity to raise a pint with David Bates, raise a pint with C.S. Lewis, and uh, hopefully raise a pint to our savior. I'm into that. Well, as the landlord rings the bell for final drinks, can you please tell people where they can go to find out more about you, the stuff you've written, and of course, Wheaton College? Yeah. So David, I never really think about where people can learn more about me. There is a Wikipedia article out there, not all of which is accurate. Uh, <laughs> I am not a huge enthusiast for water skiing. But that's been a stubborn fact in, uh, in my bio. But there's lots of information about Wheaton College at wheaton.edu. And there probably is a bio page about me and probably some latest books there as well. Um, so if people did want to find out more, that, that's where they could do it. And I will make sure links are in the show notes. Thanks again to Dr. Riken for coming on the show. Thanks to all of you for listening, all of our patron supporters, particularly our top tier supporters, Matt, Jake, James, Erica, Marvin, Joelle, Deborah, Amanda, Thomas, Bill, Bud, Shane, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, Peter, David, Angela, and Rowdy. We pray for all of our listeners and all of our prayer requests on our Slack channel every Tuesday. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please organize a trip to visit Wheaton College and the Wade Center. My wife and I are aiming to make our pilgrimage sometime there in the spring and have Dr. Riken take us water skiing. Please join us again next time when we'll continue going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.